This is the Two-Tone Uncensored Podcast. Hosts Matt McCrone, Brian Moreland, and Glenn Lotzenheiser talk everything Tennessee Titans. This show is made for the fans that bleed two-tone blue. This is Two-Tone Uncensored. We have a very good show for you tonight. I'm your host, Ryan Moreland. With me, as always, Matt, the original Matty Ice Necrone. What's up, Matt? What's going on? Don't forget, you're the golden boy, Ryan Moreland. Damn straight. Golden as ever. And Glenn, the man your mother warned you about, Lotzenheiser. What's up, Glenn? I am pumped for tonight. Before we get into uh, the show tonight, we want to you know, give a quick shout-out to two legends that we lost today. One, specifically to the Tennessee area, and that being Pat Summit, Fantastic coach, one of the best coaches regardless of any sport at the University of Tennessee. She coached the women's basketball team, and sadly, we lost Pat Summit earlier today. And I know everybody in Tennessee is feeling the loss of a coaching legend. The other one being Buddy Ryan, one of the best defensive minds, a revolutionary coach, an absolute shame to lose such a legend. He was also the uh, defensive coordinator for the 93 Oilers. And, you know, they originated the 4-6 defense. When they were with the Bears, they had a defense that scored more points than they allowed, which is just insane if you think about that. Kind of like, uh, you know, our Dick LeBeau now, he, he was that guy for the that one year with the Oilers, he was a divisive person for sure, but just an absolute defensive genius you know, in his time. And both of his sons ended up in the NFL, so it's a real loss for the for the league. Just losing a guy who was absolutely his own man and completely unapologetic about it. And his grandson's playing for Clemson, so I mean, there's there's credit there as well. Our hearts go out to the, the Summit family and the Ryan family for losing two Giants in sports. Not enough can be said about these two legends. We're going to move into our show here. We have a very special guest with us tonight, Justin Hartwig, former Tennessee Titans player, former Pittsburgh Steelers player and Super Bowl champion. How you doing, Justin? I'm great. I'm pumped up as well tonight. I'd love to uh, be on here and revel in some Titans football. Glad to hear it, Justin. All right, let's jump right into the questions here. First question for you. You went to high school in West Des Moines, Iowa, then decided to go 222 miles away to go to the University of Kansas. What went into your decision to be a Jayhawk? Well, I was kind of a low predictor coming out of high school. Kansas ended up being my only Division One offer, and the head coach at Northern Iowa, I actually didn't get offered by Iowa and Iowa State, and the head coach at Northern Iowa got the job at Kansas, Terry Allen, and I was the first guy he called up, and he said, we've been watching you on tape, and we don't know why those other schools haven't offered you, but we want you down in Kansas. And I was like, well, Big 12 competition, it's right down the road, and sign me up. So off to Lawrence I went, and um, we didn't have a winning season when I was there in five years, so that was a struggle, playing for a losing a losing program, but when I was playing there in the Big 12, I was going against some of the best defensive ends in the country every week. And uh, we frequently had four 
forest teams in the top 10 in the country every year. So, um, I got some great exposure and, uh, uh, playing offensive tackle at, uh, at Kansas and obviously in the pros, I moved to center, but, uh, that's what ultimately led me, uh, down the road to Lawrence. Uh, you were a decorated tackle in high school and college. You, know, you just mentioned that you did move to center when you got to the pros. When they, uh, when the Titans first talked to you about moving to center, how did you feel about making that move after having been a successful tackle in the Big 12? Uh, it was stressful when it, when it happened because I got into the league and you excel when you know your craft very well. And so playing tackle, I had kind of hoped I was – going to play tackle with the Titans but they said we see you as an interior guy I realized that I wasn't just quite as athletic or quite as tall as they needed me to be I ended up being a a very large center but when they talked about moving inside the guard it was a whole new animal because you're no longer just worried about protecting the edge but you got bullets flying in both directions playing inside um, at guard or center so it was a big transition for me to move to guard my first year I didn't get much uh playing time at all but um got to get a feel for what it was like to operate on the inside and working with uh guys on either side of you and passing off stunts and twists and that kind of thing but i moved to center my second year i was playing really well at at, uh guard um you know my first year in the league i was i was kind of a a fringe guy that they were going to bring along and then see if i was ready to play year two and I uh, spent a lot of time with Mike Munchak, um, obviously um, one of the most well-decorated Titans, Oilers, linemen ever. Um, but he he, uh, he said, look, our, our, our incumbent center, uh, who was going to be actually Tom Ackerman that year, he had his knee scoped, and they said, look, we want you to move inside the center. So it was literally four days before our first preseason game that they moved me to center and um i was petrified i was absolutely petrified because the center calls the defenses they're setting the pass protection schemes and not only that um well i I must say i I struggled my first year to pick up the knowledge uh, the terminology of the nfl offense and so it it was immediately a big pressure on my shoulders to be able to run and coordinate the offense. But then on top of that, from a technique standpoint, you get a, you have to actually physically get the job done as well. So it changes your angles a lot when you're playing on the inside and you have a nose guard right on top of the ball, right on top of you versus playing guard where you're uh, another foot and a half back off the line of scrimmage. So there's that. And then you have to actually snap the ball, which, uh, it took some time to start getting the ball up quickly and then shotgun snaps. So I remember just praying that Heimerdinger did not call any formations out of uh, a shotgun that first preseason game. And, uh, man, it was, it was nerve wracking, but, uh, they, they stood behind me and I remember, uh, we're probably four or five games into the season and Munch pulled me aside and he said, look, you've had your struggles, but you're getting better and you're the guy. So just stick with it. And I think them instilling confidence in me to do the job uh, is what really propelled me to thrive and succeed and just getting better at my craft every day and paying attention to what what was going on. And, and, 
there's a big learning curve in the NFL. You see a lot of guys that are big guys that they come in and you say, oh, these guys are rope beaters. These guys are awesome. But it's the guys that 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 are able to get better, that pay attention to coaching and actually apply it to the field. Those are the guys that actually stick around. And I think that was uh, one of my best characteristics um, for what I did um, for my success in the league. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of fans, of, they, they see the guy come into the league and he looks like an absolute monster. He goes out there and just gets crushed. And like you said, it's there's a, that physical adjustment to it and learning what the coaches are giving you. And you did have that opportunity to learn from a couple of the best guys, Munchak and Dinger. And yep. one of the things I don't think people understand is the difference of being on the inside of that line, how much more physical it is than when you're out there on the tackle end. Yeah, bullets are flying on the inside. They really are. You have bigger defensive tackles. I was a bigger body at center than most centers are, so that helped me in some ways. But in other ways, uh, it was a disadvantage because you got guys like Casey Hampton who are maybe six foot tall and about 350, and uh, just those those big, big, thick bodies that are hard to move around. So, um you, know, you got guys stunning and twisting from the inside, and a lot of times the, the defenders, they will look to run games or they'll try to pick you. So they'll actually like one, run one guy into you and try to loop another guy around. So you really do have to have your head on a swivel on the inside. I, I mentioned Casey Hampton, but you got guys like Sean Rogers too who are just like he's the biggest guy I ever played against, uh, like 6'5". He's he's actually about six six. I'd say he's closer to three seventy five, three eighty, and that guy could he could uh he, he was way more athletic than, than most of the guys on the field, to be honest with you. So scary guys roaming around in the middle. I, I got a personal question for you. My ex father in law was Kelly Gregg's chief when he was in the police. Do you remember Kelly Gregg playing against him with the Ravens? I do. I do. I remember that very well. Um yeah, I played against him a number of times over the years, and I remember uh, we played them in the 2003 playoffs my first year starting, and um, that was the biggest game of my career to date, and uh, I had a pretty good game that game. But he's, he's, a big, he's a big guy. He was really strong, really tough, very football smart. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw him, it didn't seem like he was that tall. It was just he was so wide and massive. I, I looked at him. Yep. And- I was like, I'm bigger than this guy. And then we kind of shook hands and bodied up on each other a little bit. It's like, okay, he wins. I'll leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, uh, yeah, in the NFL, you can't have that mentality for sure. It's interesting, the mentality that you, you have to um, – that I actually learned that just became kind of natural as my game progressed was ultimately you have to have the mentality that you are going to win on every single play and that you don't care – who they are, what they bring to the table, but it's about what you do and you worry about the things you can control and that's yourself. And when you believe that you can win on every play, you at least give yourself a chance, even if you get your butt kicked. So um, that, that was uh, one of the things that I learned from some of my, from some of my older teammates um, as I came into the league, we had a really strong veteran offensive line with uh Benji Olson, Fred Miller, uh, Zach Piller, and uh, Brad Hopkins. So um, got to learn from some some really great players when I was a young guy coming in. 
for those that don't know, the Titans drafted you back in 2002 in the sixth round. What was it like coming on to a team with already established players like Steve McNair and Eddie George? It was, I was really awestruck. I remember I was on a plane from Kansas City to, to Nashville for our first minicamp, and I was on a plane with Matt Martin, who is an offensive tackle from Kansas State. So we were both on the same flight to Nashville, and I remember reading the Sports Illustrated. There's this big advertisement in there. I forget if it's for like Reebok or something, and it was a picture of Javon Curse, and there was like lightning bolts coming down out of the sky on him. And uh, so I remember looking at Matt and being like, check this out. And we both knew that we were kind of in for a rude awakening, and, and we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. But uh, so we we get to camp, and we had a great veteran team my first year. Uh, 2002, we made it to the AFC Championship, and we had we had a bunch of superstars on the team. And so it was a great experience for me to come in, be able to learn and see how it's done, see how professionals carry themselves and how they go about their business and what it meant to play in that level. So I was really awestruck at first, but uh, you, you can't, you won't last long. If you stay in that state, you have to, um, you got to raise your game, raise the bar and uh, become one of them. So that's what I had to do. And speaking of your time with the Tennessee Titans, yeah, I mean, you had some great seasons there. Is there anything that really sticks out, a single game or a single moment, as your fondest memory of being a Titan? I think the most joyful moment I had in Tennessee was when we went to Baltimore in 2003, and we beat the Ravens in the playoffs in a last-second field goal by Gary Anderson. And it was memorable because well, it was the last second field goal when we beat the Ravens in the playoffs, obviously. But uh, I remember Gary at that time was like 43, 44 years old. His range was his range was like 43 or 44 yards max. And the field goal he had to make was right at that distance. And I remember the field goal that he kicked, it actually hit the goalpost, or it hit the crossbar and bounced in. And I remember carrying Gary off the field and, it was a pretty epic moment, and that set us up for our, our showdown in New England. And New England ended up winning, I think, the first of their uh, recent championships that year. But uh, we had a chance to win that game at the end, too. We were down three. We are driving the ball, got a holding call. We had a pass from Steve to Drew Bennett that slipped through Drew's hands that uh, would have given us a first down at the 10-yard line with like a minute and a half left to play. And uh, I thought that we had a really tough team that year in 2003, Uh, 2002, we made it to the AFC championship. And then Oh three, I thought we had, we had an even better team. Those that, that year, those two games culminated with Steve winning the co MVP that year in 2003. It was just a special year for us all. So that, that, that season kind of sticks out to me. Yeah. I've been a, Titans and Oilers fans since back in the early 70s. And we, we've had a lot of that experience. It was so awesome we finally got to that Super Bowl and got over that final hump. Uh, something I've always I've always had a stance on is the team that beats you, I like to see them go ahead and go all the way and win because I don't want to lose to somebody who didn't get it done. Did it hurt more to lose to the Patriots knowing that they were going to, you know, after they went on and won that Super Bowl? Or would it have, 
you had lost to them and they hadn't won the Super Bowl, would that have hurt more? That's tough. That's tough because the bottom line is wins and losses, and when you lose, it's kind of like that's it and you don't really care. I guess you can look back and say, well, they won it. They were a heck of a team, and so it doesn't hurt as bad, you know, in theory. But really, you lose, you lose. It doesn't matter to who you lose because it's all about you and not the other team. So, uh, yeah, kudos to New England that year, but um, they weren't a better team than us. I don't think anybody on this phone call would argue with that. <laughs> nope. Going back into the uh, coaches, having Mike Munchak, you know, Hall of Fame offensive lineman, he was your line coach. How does he compare with the other coaches? Uh, some of the other coaches you played for weren't as decorated, didn't have that resume that you know Munch has. Did you feel like you got more knowledge from him and he was easier to groom you along, being having been such a great player? Or was it about the same experience you got from the other uh, line coaches you had? Munch, Munch was head and shoulders above the rest. and I, I don't think I would have made it in the NFL if it wasn't for him. He was a very humble guy. And he was a great teacher, and everybody respected him because we all knew he had been there and done that, and he was the best. So we kind of hung on every word that he said, and we knew that he had credibility, inherent credibility, that he'd been in every little situation we were, were in. And so I think with other coaches, there's a tendency to once you get to that level, there's a tendency to question what they're telling or what they're saying, because they might've never been in the same kind of firefight that you've been in. So while you respect those guys, they've been around the game. Munchak had been there, done that. And, uh, he knew how to, he, he was kind of like one of the guys, but he was still the leader, the unquestioned leader. And he, uh, he knew how to motivate. I think one of the biggest challenges in the NFL is, You've got a bunch of individuals, a bunch of egos that you have to manage, and you got to get the best out of every guy. That's not always easy because everybody is motivated differently, and everybody is there for their job. So there's this inherent motivation that you have upon yourself, but still, you got to get the guys playing as a unit and get the best out of each player. And Munch did a great job of that. He wasn't a guy that was ever going to uh, chew you up and spit you out or yell at you. It was just like, well, I mean, he was just a matter of fact guy. Like, here's the facts. Here's what happened. Here's what you got to do better. So I, I think that approach worked for everybody. I really do. Now he was never my head coach, but, um, but I can say that uh, certainly I owe the foundation of, of, the player that I became um, was definitely a credit to him and, and what he's able to do. You've been out of the league for a few years now. Have you ever considered yourself going into coaching? Yeah, I've thought about it. Uh, I would love to coach. I think I've got a vast amount of knowledge, and I think I would be good in a teaching role. Uh, the tricky part is the time, because you look at college and pro coaches, and those guys are, they work seven days a week, really. Uh, they don't have much of an off season. If they do, it's in the summertime, uh, right before the season starts. <clears throat> They're either recruiting or scouting or uh, preparing for the next season. And in season, those guys like literally sleep at the office. So 
Uh, I don't envy the time commitment they have. I think maybe uh, down the line in my life it would be something that I look into, but maybe high school coaching. But uh, right now, you know, I'm focused on a handful of different ventures and and, uh, family life. So, you know, it's definitely something that I would look into in the future. So your time in Tennessee came to a close and you end up going to Carolina. How much, if any, did the team's handling of Steve McNair make up your mind to leave or did that have any effect on your your uh, moving to Carolina at all um I'm trying to remember the the course of events if Steve got released before I got um before I ended up leaving in free agency I, I will say this that the Titans um the Titans dropped the ball with me in free agency I think they wanted to sign me. I think they took for granted that I was going to resign with the Titans. And uh, I don't look back and have any kind of ill feelings, but just uh, it was unfortunate it played out the way it did. I ended up in Carolina, and, uh, you know, Steve ended up leaving and going to Baltimore. And I actually ran into Steve shortly after I had signed with Carolina. I ran into him, and he, uh, he was just like, it was the most bizarre thing. He said, I showed up to work out one day, and they basically told me I couldn't work out because they didn't want to risk me getting hurt. And it's like, he's the franchise quarterback, and it's like, what do you mean I can't work out? So I think they handled that poorly, and I think Steve was deeply hurt by that. He was a pillar in the community for a long time in Nashville, and, and uh, really there's there's really no better Titan than, than Steve um, in the history of the franchise at least in, in Tennessee. So, um, you know, that was disappointing, but everything happens the way it's supposed to and the way it's supposed to work out. And I'm thankful for him that he got to go have a one really good season in, in Baltimore anyways. And, you know, I would have loved to have stayed in Tennessee, but I am fortunate to have moved on and ultimately won a Super Bowl. Kind of a two-part thing. Yeah, we were all upset with how the Titans mishandled Steve. My question was, what was your impression of Bud Adams, and do you have any personal experiences with him? Um, it's funny, the one, you know, Bud operated out of Houston, so he wasn't around the organization very much, except we would see him very periodically after a big win. He would come down into the locker room, and, I, well, he, he wasn't around the team that much, so, of course, he didn't really wasn't able to place a face with a name. So I remember he would always walk around from locker to locker and look up at your nameplate to see who you were. And I always appreciated that the one time that I saw him, Bud was a fellow Kansas Jayhawk. And so I remember he came up to me. He's like, how are you doing Jayhawker? Congratulations. <laughs> so nice. that was, that was about it. Um, so I only shook his hand a couple of times, but, I at least knew that he knew who I was because we were both Jayhawks. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to ask something. Um, it's not the Titans related, but it's from the Super Bowl. Going into the last you know, minute of the game, and that, that holding penalty that kind of swung the game. And, you know, the, the team came back and won. And we, we've all made mistakes on the field and put ourselves in a spot where we're like, oh, God, please, I hope this works out for us. Were you able to let that holding penalty go right away so you could enjoy the experience, or did it just kind of taint the experience for you? I don't remember a holding call. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, no holding call. Uh, yeah, it, uh, 
that was a tough deal. It um, really what happened was that the guy did did something that I I didn't anticipate. They were running a stunt, and I was prepared for it. We had practiced all week that the guy was going to loop around and and try to run around me, and uh, I threw my arm out, and he actually ran over me. Is what happened. And so, unfortunately, it, for linemen, if if you get run over, they call holding. And so that's what ended up happening. I thought it was a bad call. But we we are designed to be machine-like in how we operate. We're not doing ourselves any good if we uh, live in the past or let those kinds of things linger. we got to move on to the next play. With that being said, I remember going back to the sidelines, and I was like, holy crap, I just could have cost us the Super Bowl. And so I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't have any anxiety at the time. I did, but I had some great teammates that got my back, and we were a, a team that year that we were just – we overcame so much adversity, and we won so many close games at the end of ball games because we had number seven as our quarterback – and he always just found a way to get it done. We had we beat the Ravens three times that year and had an epic comeback in Baltimore when we played there in the regular season. And uh, so it didn't surprise me that we, we came back and won the game. Uh, I thought we were the better team. I thought we were destined for, for a championship that year. So there was some uh, redemptive feelings there, though. Uh, I don't like to think much about what it would have been like if we didn't win. Yeah, I hesitated to even bring it up, but since you guys did win, I was like, okay, I can ask this because he's got the ring to show for it. Fair enough. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously it's a high school thing, but I, I missed a tackle that resulted in a 93-yard touchdown. Though, uh, and we, <laughs> we, we we managed to come back and win with a field goal at the last second. That was the only kick our, uh, kicker made the entire season, but he won the game for us. And so I was like, I kind of relate to that feeling. I, you know, you're sitting on the sideline going, oh, my God, what have I done? And like you said, you, you fell down because he ran you over. And it, was, it wasn't something you expected. It's not like you were just doing a terrible holding play because you got beat badly or something. Right. Um, I did have one question, though, about number seven. You, you played with him and McNair. How different were those two guys in the huddle? What kind of leaders were they? Uh, they're both great leaders. Both had great poise and both had that air of confidence. And it's interesting with quarterbacks – I've I've played with a lot of quarterbacks in my day and almost immediately within a couple plays, a couple plays of being in the huddle with a quarterback, whether it's in practice or in a game, you get a sense for what kind of command they have of the huddle. They are the leader of your group. That is the guy that's going to lead you down the field. And so he has to instill confidence in the group. He's got to get the group to believe and what he's instructing them to do. You need a guy like Steve McNair that's going to come in the huddle and say, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this ball down the field, and we're going to shove it down their throat, and we're going to get a touchdown. And when it comes from a guy like that, you just are like, let's do this. We're, we're on board with you, man. You know, We got your back. So the quarterback's got to have confidence, and they have to lead that group both emotionally and physically. And so Steve and Ben were both very unique individuals, but they definitely both had that in, in common that they were leaders in the huddle and, and uh, 
they they definitely got the group to believe in them. Uh, looking back at your entire career, are there any great uh, camp stories or funny moments that stick out to you? Oh man, there was uh, there was a handful that were that are not not even safe for radio ears. Um, <laughs> but we they the the rookie the rookie hazing was back then in two thousand and two. Uh, it was a lot different than it is now. Everything's changed, but. I remember as a rookie, we I, I came into the room the year after Bruce Matthews left. So then you had a guy like Brad Hopkins who's in the room and Fred Miller who are trying to assert their dominance over the room by picking up where Bruce left off and messing with the rookies a lot. So we we uh, we, we were in charge of keeping the drink fridge filled with all kinds of soda it had to be cold at all times and Gatorade and Mike Heimerdinger used to come in and raid all of our cold diet Cokes and we would get fined because we never had enough cold diet Cokes in the fridge because Dinger would steal them all after hours. But, uh, we, we ended up, we had, we had to have a pretty vicious snack table. We had a ton of snacks, had to keep that loaded for our offensive line room. And then, the worst for me was having to sing as offensive linemen. We had to sing in front of our group every single night. Uh, so they demanded a lot out of us, but we also had guys getting taped to goalposts and stuff dumped on them. And we live in a day and age now where guys are willing to fight you over stuff like that. And people get sued over stuff like that. But back then it was just part of being a rookie and, going along with it, kind of paying your dues in a fun way. The rookie haircuts were always a highlight every year. So, Yeah, I remember those. I've, yeah, I've got a few home videos of some of our rookie haircuts that you uh, – I, I can guarantee you that guys did not go back and – or they did not leave their hair like that once, uh, once camp was over. But um, those are all fun memories. Just I would say some of the – the rookie hazing stuff. And I was kind of hard on rookies after that as well because I had a, a rough rookie year. So, All right. You obviously had a, a pretty great career, but what was the one player, if you had to pick one defensive lineman or linebacker that you played against that just dominated, the most you know dominant, best defender that you've ever played against? Oh, man. Um, that, that's tough. That's a tough question. It's hard to give credit for those guys. As, yeah, I mean the one name, the one name that jumps that jumps up fast would be Ray Lewis when I when I played him when when I was younger and he was obviously a little bit younger. I remember playing them in the '03 playoffs, which I I mentioned earlier, and he would be on the backside of an outside zone play. Like we'd be running the ball to the right, and he's starting off on you know, the left side of the the defense. Uh, away from the ball so we would run this 16 stretch play with eddie and and i would just have to get cut him off from on the back side of a play but this guy the ball would be snapped and he would already be play side before i could even get two steps uh, towards him and i remember coming back to the sidelines and munch telling me there's nothing you can do about that and b hop was sitting there going man that that dude sold his soul to the devil to get <laughs> to get as, as fast and instinctive as he is. Ray, Ray, he also hit like a truck when he was younger. I think as he got older, 
he got more crafty and he tried to avoid blocks a little bit, but he was not afraid to light you up when, when he needed to. And, and that, that dude could lower the shoulder. I, I'll tell you one other freakish little thing is I remember we, we played the dolphins. We had them for a camp. We had them in training camp one year. They came and did joint practices with us. Then we ended up playing them uh, a few times in the regular season when I was there in Tennessee, but junior Seau was playing for them at the time. And that guy was calling out every play before we ran it. We'd be, we'd be just based on our formation. It, it was, it was training camp. We're, we're practicing them. And just based on our formation, he was calling out the majority of the plays that we were about to run before we ran them. And he hadn't studied any film or anything like that. It was just this freakish instinct that he had based on the formation and based on the body language of the offensive players. And I remember coming back to the huddle going, this guy knows exactly what we're doing. And, uh, and he liked to, uh, he liked to get after it a little bit after the whistle. He was, uh, one of those guys that would get an extra little shot in here and there. He was looking for an edge any way he could get it. So, um, yeah, I could have gone with two defensive linemen, but really those say and, and Lewis really seeing out to me as, as uh, head and shoulders above the rest of players because of their knowledge and instincts for the game. How disheartening is it to have, you know, say I'll sit over there calling the plays out before you get a chance to run them and just thinking we need an audible or something, but he's going to know that too. It was, it was frustrating. It really was. Fortunately, it wasn't happening that much in the games because as an offensive player, you have the advantage of knowing what's going to happen before it happens. So you want to use all the tools that you have to your advantage. Another thing that that was really always important to centers was the snap count. And I always thought that knowing the snap count could be a huge advantage for the offense. But in the NFL, they rarely teams rarely change the snap count up from – going on one because they're worried that guys are going to jump off sides on offense. So I think unless you're practicing going on different, different cadences, coordinators are scared to go on anything but one. And so that was always frustrating as a center, the, the guy that needed to use the snap count the most because he's got a guy breathing down his neck. It was frustrating that uh, the, the coordinators wouldn't do that more. And I would always, back to the quarterback hey come on man let's go on two. help me out here and and uh they'd be like man i'm, I'm trying to tell the coordinator but he, he's not letting me so um but yeah you got to use every advantage you can knowing that you know what's about to happen before it happens on offense so with them almost always going on one how much of a difference does crowd noise really make you know if you know you're going to go on one does the crowd have as much of an impact as we the fan thinks it does as far as that snap it 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 depends now if we're we're tennessee and we're playing up in in uh the rca dome in indianapolis that place is loud as all get out so if if you're an offensive tackle you literally can't hear the quarterback at all so you end up having to go on a silent count which is just it puts everybody at a disadvantage because the, the, the tackles are relying on a head motion, head movement, and a, and a rhythm from the center. And so they have to peripherally be looking at the football instead of looking at their assignment. So uh, if, if the crowd noise gets really loud, 
when you're on the road, it can definitely make an impact. You see guys jumping off sides all the time and uh, guys late getting off the ball. Um, it, it, def- it can definitely help help the team. So that's something we need our fans to remember this year uh, at home games. Make, make it so those tackles can't hear and they're busy watching the center hoping that you know they, they get the snap count right. Absolutely, and they got to fill the stadium too. That would help. Yeah, anyway. Absolutely. Well, Justin, that's all the questions we have. Thanks so much for coming on. You were a great interview. Definitely be happy to have you on again, man. That was an awesome interview. Yeah, great listen, dude. Yeah, we absolutely appreciate the knowledge. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I enjoyed rapping about it a little bit here. And uh, yeah, if you guys ever want to have me on again, I'd be more than happy to. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll have everything offensive line. We're going to cover the O-line of the Tennessee Titans for you. We'll be right back. Time to pay the bills. Some quick ads and we'll get right back to the show. Hey, this is Ryan and Rich from the Free Parking Show. Our show is a sports podcast hosted by four sports journalists and features shows like Beers and Cheers, Par for Discourse, and our NFL preview, the 32-team parking garage. Check us out on Stitcher, Spreaker, and our website, www.freeparking.com. You're listening to Two Tone Uncensored, brought to you by Pinecast and Stitcher. All right, we're back. We're going to cover the offense line here. We're going to start out here with the tackle position. You know, we got guys, really young guys that we obviously know are going to start here and, and some backup players. So, Glenn, what do you think about this? these tackles on both sides and, and their backups? Well, starting out with the veteran uh, we're going to go with uh, Taylor Lawn, you know, and he gets kind of a rough time because he came in as a rookie, was started right away, had your typical rookie struggles. Last year, he started out a little bit rough. They made him a team captain, which is just another one of those wizard hunt failings. And once Malarkey came in and took that away from him, it made a difference as far as the way he felt on the field. He was playing better. He ended up being a pretty good left tackle last season. And so – the feeling that everybody had that he should definitely move to right tackle. We don't want him as our left tackle anymore. It's a little overblown from his early stats. I, I think that he's going to end up being a really good left tackle. I think he would also end up being a really good right tackle. Uh, we've already had that conversation, you know, talking about players coming to the team and the draft and the moves and that kind of thing. He's a big guy. He plays hard. I've listened to some of his interviews. He's a lot of fun to listen to. He seems like a good guy for the locker room. I think that we're going to find out that this year he's going to be a really good starting left tackle for us. And him being over there is going to make it the transition for Jack Conklin on the right side a little bit easier. You know, Jack's obviously our number one draft pick this year. He's a big guy. He's known for being a powerful guy and playing real hard. He's been kind of quiet in the uh, OTAs just because he goes out there and he does what he's supposed to do. I don't get the impression he's as big a personality as Luan is, which is fine. You don't have to have a ton of personality on the offensive line. You just need guys who come out there and do their job. And he's you know, going to obviously start for us as a rookie unless he gets hurt. 
it's kind of going to be the way this is this year. Is we got a bunch of young guys. Our veteran going to be our senator that we brought in. He's not an old guy. So it's going to be a young team. We're going to have young tackles. They're going to make some mistakes. We're going to run a lot of power football, though, which will help minimize that impact on Mariota. Just by running the ball, having extra tight ends in there to help out against you know certain people like the J.J. Watts of the world. The young tackles, are, they're going to have a learning curve. Luan's going to get better. But all in all, I think that we're going to be much happier with this starting group than we were last year. I think it was a pretty big mistake to name him a captain so young in his career, so early in his career. You know, they, they made him a captain. They gave him a, a banner, which they ended up taking down. I can't remember who they placed him with, but they, they just took it down this couple months ago. We asked a whole lot of him, and obviously that wasn't the best route to go. I as he matures, he's definitely going to fill into the uh, the left tackle that we need. When he was first introduced doing the Logan's Roadhouse uh, radio shows, and, and I loved his personality. One thing I took away from learning so much about him was that he doesn't, he even said it himself, he doesn't have the love of the game that I wish he did have. He just knows he's good at it, and that's why he's here. Physically, he's a monster. I think if he gets his head right, he could definitely be our starting left tackle for a long time. The competition behind him is not even comparable to anything uh, worth mentioning. I honestly think that once these players start getting waived, we'll probably be picking up a few players probably all over the offensive line, maybe except for center. Our tackles are probably set in stone, but we definitely need some backup help. Yeah, I'm going to agree with a lot of what you guys said here. Luan does get a lot of trash, and he did not play really well at the beginning of the season. Like Glenn said, but Pro Football Focus did rankings of the top tackles in all the NFL, both at the right and left position, ranking them based off of how well they block, pass block, and rush block. Taylor Lewan fell 14th on that list. And if you consider the talent that the NFL has at the tackle position, and you consider that it's a ranking of both right and left tackles, not just left tackles, that's a pretty good spot to be in, especially for how young the guy is. And considering how bad the talent was around him, it's hard to be shining star if you don't have the talent around you to help you get the production. Luan gets a lot of hate because the guys around him weren't very talented last year. I think that he is, you know, he's really progressing. You can see it year to year. I like Taylor Luan. I've seen some people call for him to be off of the team or be cut, which is just ridiculous. He really has progressed. And I'm excited to see him and moving forward in his career. On the right side, you have Jack Conklin coming in. And anybody who listens to the show knows that I would have rather had Laramie Tunsil. But I do like Jack Conklin. I think that this is a kid that's going to start and be an instant upgrade at the right tackle position. I think in a few years, you see him improve. He could play left tackle if we need him to. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in the NFL with free agency injuries and whatnot. You know, obviously, a kid that comes from Big Ten, he's a huge, just going to be a road grader. Really excited to see Jack Conklin in the lineup. As for their backups here, Pales, uh, Mars Carlson uh, in that mix there. Nobody really sticks out to me here. I think we have average, if not below average, depth at the tackle position. So I really, really obviously hope that Lawan and Conklin can stay healthy because I'm not really impressed with the second group that we have behind them. Would you agree or disagree with that, Glenn? I completely agree. I Last year, I remembered the tackle spot before they went into the season, 
and they brought in one of the guys we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes with uh, Jeremiah Patassi. They went ahead and got a starting tackle, which is awesome. I think Matt hit it right on the button. We're probably going to end up grabbing somebody when the rosters get cut down, and we're going to find our lead backup tackle, if nothing else. Because the rest of these guys, there's some nice players in there, and they could prove us wrong and have really done a lot of work in the offseason and come in and just be ready to rock and roll. But it's going to be a pretty lean group, I think. I don't see them carrying more than maybe three extra linemen. You know, and then the guys will be coming out the practice call when they get hurt. So for one of these backups at the tackle position to make it, I don't, I don't see it happening for them. They're more likely to catch on to the practice squad and get their chance to play if somebody goes down, which I don't want to happen. But our line the last few years has a real habit of people getting hurt. So, you know, Luan, he's been hurt quite a bit. Jack's going to take a pretty good beating his first season, whether, you know, people want to admit it or not. He is a rookie. So there's every chance that someone's going to end up having to come in and play some snaps for him. And like Matt said, I think it's going to be someone from somebody else's squad that just has a better, more established uh, line than we do. And then these guys will all end up dropping off. Yeah, like he said, uh, Taylor Lewan was injured last year. I think that uh, that played a big part in his drop-off of production. The guys behind him, like I've already said, they I don't think they make the make the roster whatsoever. I could definitely see... Conklin holding down the right spot. All right, we're going to talk about the guards here, guys. At right, Chance Warmack right now is how, who we have listed as a starter, and on the left side, Quentin Spain. But obviously with this left guard spot, it could change. A lot of names could end up being in that starting spot. So who do you think week one will be the starter on that left side, and what do you think about Warmack staying on the right? As far as the right side goes, I think Warmack's got that locked down. Uh, you're going to have him out there next to Jack Conklin, and I think you want to have, at least for our team, a veteran presence next to the rookie tackle. I don't know that uh, Chance is going to be able to help him a whole lot as far as guiding him. He hasn't shown us just a ton of uh, ability to make those switches and that kind of thing, but as far as a power run blocker, that's what he's supposed to be good at. We just haven't had a chance to see it yet, which I think a large part of that is we just haven't put him putting him in the right positions. His first year as a rookie, he wasn't ready to be the lead guy, and he got a lot of flack for that from the fans because we took him as high as we did. Now, if you needed a guard that high, and a lot of people were rating him to be roughly in the area that we took him, but he wasn't a sexy pick. So the fan base has been sour on him almost from the start. I think this is his make-or-break year. I mean, he's obviously coming up the last year of his contract. We're going to have to see what he can really give us this season. And as long as he shows up and he's putting out the strong effort, every offseason he shows up in the gym. He's got, you know, he's verging on having abs. I think he's a willing player. He just needs to be used properly in the right system. And this downhill running system, this is exactly what he's built for. So this should be a good year for Warmack. He should have that spot locked down. As you said, the left guard spot's the one that we're really questioning about. Quentin Spain, you know, before contact, has really uh, shown up to be the right guy. He obviously knows what he's trying to do. He knows where he needs to be. He's making the right switches, but they're not hitting anybody yet. He was an undrafted free agent whenever we picked him up last year. He's had some t- game time, but I don't know that he can hold that spot once real contact starts. Jeremiah Potassi is a guy that he got a lot of grief last year for not being able to hold down that right that right tackle spot. I never thought he was a right tackle in the first place. It was one of the things that everybody was calling Rustin Webster out on for drafting him as high as he did. He would have been there later. I mean, he was more of a guard 
and a project at that. He probably was a sixth-round pick, not as high as where he was drafted. So he was put in a bad spot. Then he had a coaching staff that was using him wrong, like I felt they were almost the entire offensive line. Going into last year, I said we didn't have a single right tackle on the team. So making a guy who's a project guard the right tackle set him up for failure last year. He's got some talent. He's a big kid. I think he could end up taking over Quentin Spain. The fan base certainly wants Sebastian Tertola to have this job. They already love this guy because he's nasty and he's he's aggressive. The coaches have been talking about it. They're just trying to reel him back in a little bit because he has that drive. You know, Sebastian does. He has that drive to go out there and hit somebody. But at the pro game, you've got to be a little bit smarter about it. At the end, I, it's hard to say who's going to have that spot. I think it's between those three guys. I think Jeremiah could surprise us and take that uh, left guard spot. He could end up just being the left guard, right guard backup. And then Quinton ends up taking the starting job if he holds up once contact starts. Sebastian, I don't, I don't think I want to see him start this year. I, I'd rather see him have this year to get his feet underneath him, to learn what it's really like in an NFL game, and then next year be there to compete and take that job if one of these other guys hasn't absolutely locked it down or if Warmack goes away because he's the Warmack kind of player. I, I would put him behind Warmack and let him learn and be ready to replace Chance if Chance can't prove it this season. Chance needed this season. He was just uh, declined his fifth-year option, and I think that speaks volumes of where he's at with the team. I forget. Yeah, I know he was a top-ten pick. I can't. I think he was, what was the A pick overall. I think he does have the right spot locked in. But everybody, as far as uh, Quentin Spain, Schwenke, Patassi, and, and anyone else, and, and like I said, I really believe we bring another guy in. They're all interchangeable in my mind, and they're all potential backups. I think that Schwenke's probably better off at guard. I know I surely do not want him as our center. I think he's he's got a bad rep. I know there's a few games last season where I saw, and I know he was he was injured, um, but before his injury, he had some plays that had me scratching my head. As far as Patasi goes, like Glenn said, they put him in a tackle position where he should have never been. I think he will probably improve the most out of any of these backups where he's not relied upon. That's the thing with, with this staff, the last with Wisenhunt and the last couple years, really. We have all these projects that were thrown into the fire that were not ready to compete, and they had no option but to compete. And that's probably why I'm hard on Schwenke as well. He he had no business starting out there. But now he's, he's probably going to swing out the guard, which I do like that move. I think he could be a quality backup. Quentin Spain, who was an undrafted rookie, um, he played pretty well when, when given an opportunity. He's apparently performing well as well. Um, when the act begins, we'll see if that can hold up. But all of those guys are interchangeable as far as the left guard goes. And like I said, I truly believe our starting left guard is probably not on the roster right now. Yeah, I forgot to mention uh, Swanky when I was talking about that group. I also think it's a better move for him to move out to guard, mostly because he seems to get hurt in contact. So he hasn't been able to stay healthy. That's the biggest knock we have on him. I wasn't that high on him when they drafted him in the first place. I think moving out the guard gives him a chance to not quite be at the center of the uh, contact in there. Maybe it'll make him a little bit healthier and let him focus on just his blocking assignments instead of getting that ball snapped and trying to read the defenses. We've got a center who came in now who's obviously going to be a stronger guy for that position. So 
Swanky out there. He could be a part of that. I don't know that at the end of the day he makes that 53-man roster because I'm not sure that he's any better or you know, really any worse, like Matt said, than any of these other guys. They're all roughly the same guy. But certainly the, all of these guys, their jobs are in jeopardy. They're going to have to really put on a show you know, once contact starts in order to hold down their, their, their spot on the roster at all. you got to realize that the guy next to you is going to make you better. So if we get a solid left tackle out of Lauren, a right tackle out of Conklin, a solid guard out of Warmack, well, obviously Ben Jones is probably the most solid line we have. It starts right there. If we can get those guys to do their job, it's only going to make the man next to them that much better. And I think, you know, no matter who it is at left guard or right guard for that matter, we're in a better position to succeed. I think run blocking is less, you know, less thinking than, than pass blocking. And, you know, we're definitely going to run the ball this year. Not a lot of times will you see a position battle that involves, you know, four or five guys, but this is one of them where you could definitely see it. Right now, I would have Quentin Spain as my starting left guard. If if we were starting the season tomorrow, from what we've seen from him this year, the growth, the maturity, and the the physical attributes that this man has, I think he would be my starter right now, but... You know, if Schwinky can stay healthy, if he can get healthy, obviously pushing out from center, it's going to be a little hard figuring out how to play guard because it is a different position. It's going to be a learning process. So that definitely puts him at a little bit of a disadvantage, but he has started on this offensive line before at different positions. So we've seen a lot more from him. The coaching staff seen a lot more from him in real live act. Next, I'm looking at Patalsi here. There's another guy that, you know, if he does impress, he could really end up being that starter there. But it wouldn't really overly shock me if he was cut from the team and didn't make the 53-man roster because of what we've seen from him so far, just hasn't been very impressive. But I think it would probably end up being a backup role. He gives us a little bit of versatility because I think he can play both on the right and the left spot. So I think he'll end up staying. As for... Mormack, obviously, I think he'll stay on the right side. He's a pretty good run blocker, and obviously better than he is in pass blocking, and obviously this is what we want to do. The right side's where you run the majority of the times. So I think you're going to see him stay on that right side. Sebastian Tretola, I know that the fans are really looking for this guy to step up and start, but I agree with Glenn. I do not want to see him start this year. He is a powerful guy. He's got the measurables where he can really explode. He's got a lot of strength in those legs, but... He's not very athletic. He has sloppy footwork. The mechanics need to improve before we see him go there. I know a lot of guys get high on him, but it's kind of a backup quarterback kind of a thing. The love of the fans is that backup quarterback because he only has to come in on a couple plays. He looks pretty good, so they think he's better than the starter. I think this is kind of like that with the rookies. You know, you always, always got to be better than the starter because he's new, he's fresh, and that's just not the case. I think you're going to see him be kind of buried on this depth chart we might see a little bit of action out of him but I think the least the better I'm not saying I don't think he can become a really great offensive lineman because I think he has the skills to do it but the mechanics just aren't there right now I really in my honest honest opinion I don't really put him in this race I think it's more between Spain uh, Schwinky Patalsi I don't really see Tretola being in this race I just he's just not there yet as a player I think he needs time to mature and time to really get his mechanics worked out, his footwork cleaner, and then we're going to see him play guard for this team. But not until that happens. Well, Ryan, let me just say this about Trey. Uh, move over Tajay Sharp, move over Mike Malarkey. We got a new hater, and it's all about Trey. I, I think that 
fan base is high on him strictly because of his attitude. Utah's mechanics need work, and they do. I'm glad Malarkey actually made the comment. Uh, he's he's not putting him in a starting role. He's not ready for a starting role. But he has so much will that during plays, he will do till the end. And Malarkey would much much rather a player like that puts 110% with less technique. He's a true project, and I, if you approach him correctly, I think in a couple of years, he's definitely a potential starter. I don't think he gets buried in the depth chart. Well, Matt, you just basically said the same thing I did. You just worded it different. He will be a potential starter. I think he is a project player. I'm just saying for this year, there's no way he's starting. And I don't put him in that starting list or competing for that job just because he's not ready. I think the guy has a lot of heart. He has the kind of skills you want. And the power obviously is there, but he's just not ready to start this year. Obviously, down the road, I think he could be an asset to this team and a potential starter. And then we have Mateus and Richard. These are both guys that have played on the outside at tackle. They are listed right now currently as guards. Two guys that I really don't think we see make the 53-man roster. Would you guys agree with that? No, I don't see him making it at all. No, they're probably going to end up having to be practice squad players just because there's just not that spot there for them. And we are first on the waiver wire. We're going to grab at least one offensive lineman, I, I expect, because they didn't replace Bell when he went down, and they probably didn't do that because they've got a good group of young guys they can get a look at and then have that waiver wire spot to pick up somebody more experienced later on. Let me ask you guys this. I know he's a tackle, but with Eugene Monroe getting cut from uh, Baltimore, I know he and Derek Morgan have teamed up to uh, spread knowledge on cannabis. Do you see Eugene Monroe possibly being a fit on the team, whether it's a tackle or a guard? I don't know if I can see that. Maybe in a backup role at tackle, for sure. He's huge to play inside. That would be, I mean, that would be a monster uh, of a guard. Uh, height-wise, but uh, yeah, I could see him maybe making it as a, as a backup tackle. I think he's a guy that has talent, and really, as we were just talking, our tackles outside of our starters, not very impressive, but I would see us first going after someone that can be a starter at, you know, at left guard, our secondary could be somewhere where they address it, so I think first we'd go after someone who has starter potential for us, and I just don't see Monroe kicking in the inside with the height that he has. I think it's more likely we pick up somebody more like another Bell, somebody who, like you just said, somebody who can play some tackle if they need to, can come in there and compete, if not necessarily take over the spot at guard. So I, I don't see him coming in. I don't think the cannabis thing's really got anything to do about it. It won't help his cause any given the uh, current league rules. You know, anybody who's out there advocating for cannabis is going to have a hard time convincing another team that, He's the guy they need to bring in when they've already got one of those running around. Do you think Warren Bell would not have been injured? He'd be in the way, not Quentin Spain? I do. I think he's a more powerful interior player. I'm not sure that he's on the team next year, though, just because of the young guys we are developing, like Sebastian. I thought this was Bell's chance to solidify a spot on the roster. This may be that season where he gets hurt and he never really catches back on again after this. I agree with Glenn. Quentin Spain might have put some pressure on him, especially with how strong his workouts were, but I don't think he would have been setting at the starter. I think Bell would have been the starter right now, and I agree with Glenn on the second point there. It really feels like that it's not a career-ending injury, but it's the end of your career because of an injury. Yeah, he just resigned for, I think, a year, and that was it, so that's pretty much the end of his time here. All right, we're going to move on to the center position here. Obviously, we've talked about Ben Jones, 
who we brought in from Houston, going to be most likely the starter here. Uh, Schwinky in the mix, obviously. He's played center before as a potential backup. And we have a guy in Andy Gaelic, who we've had since the last year. Got to see a little bit of him um, during his rookie year. So what do you think? Ben Jones, obviously the starter. Who do you think ends up in this backup role? And what do you think about the center position as a whole for the Titans? I think the long shot that made the group is going to end up being Gaelic. Not just not because he didn't play well when he came in. I mean, he was a rookie when he came in and filled center. He he played pretty well. He did the best he could. I think he was a limited player to start with, though. And with a surefire starter in Ben Jones, a guy that plays complete seasons that doesn't get hurt, that gets back onto the field, I don't think Gaelic ends up staying around because you can use uh, Brian Swanky as your backup center and your backup guard, and you've got a more proven center, even if he's not a fan favorite and he gets hurt a little bit. If he only has to come in and play a game or two, I think if you're talking about keeping a backup center around, it ends up being Brian Swanky instead of uh, Andy Gaelic, who I like as a guy. I just don't see him uh, – making this roster right now. Yeah, honestly, I think Gaelic probably, from what I've seen, I, I like him. There's no way Ben Jones is not the starter, but as far as Gaelic goes, I kind of like him to be the number two. And two, I think we keep two centers, and if you want to count Schwanky three, but I, I'd much rather see Schwanky at guard. But from the little bit we've seen from Gaelic, I, he was a seventh-round pick and showed a lot of promise. I'm not saying he's going to push Ben Jones by any means. Yeah, I like... Andy Gaelic, obviously, he's a kid that has kind of like that real blue-collar work attitude, you know, kind of a guy that brings his lunch to the stadium in a pail, you know. Hard-nosed, tough, physical guy, but still a little undersized, even if now that he's put weight on. It's just not seeing the skill really there. Schwenke makes, the, I think, the better option. Unless we see something crazy uh, in training camp, I think Schwenke's going to be the backup here. The only way I really see it happening for Andy Gaelic is if Schwinky ends up at that starting spot at left guard, then obviously Andy would move up into the second slot at center. That's really the only way I see him sticking in that backup role. As of right now, I just think that Schwinky's the better option. Not taking anything away from the kid because you know I think Andy Gaelic is just exactly what you want character-wise out of a football player. But that's about all we have for this show, guys. I hope you all enjoyed it. Another big thanks to Justin Hartwig for coming on to the show with us. It was awesome doing the interview with him. Do not forget, we are still doing the two-tone uncensored scavenger hunt. You get a chance to win free tickets to that week one home game against Minnesota. So check it out. All of the, the entire list is on Facebook at our Facebook page. You can see it there. You can also listen to episode six again to hear the entire list and us break down the list of everything you got to do in order to try to win those awesome tickets. The competition ends July 19th, so still plenty of time to get those entries in. Be sure to check us out on Facebook at Two Tone Podcast, on Twitter at Two Tone Uncensor. You can find the show on the Stitcher app or on Stitcher.com, and you can find it on Two Tone pinecast.co and find all the shows there as well for everybody wondering the mailbag will be back next week we just didn't have time for it this week with having Hartwig on so it'll be back next week we'll also come back with the news and so we will be covering the defensive line moving across the trenches for next week 
and really breaking down that defensive line unit. So thanks, everybody out there. Thanks to my awesome co-hosts. Everybody have a good day. One more thanks out for uh, Justin Hartwick for being such a great interview. Thanks for listening to the Two-Tone Uncensored Podcast. You can listen to the show at twotone.pinecast.co or by downloading the Stitcher app on your mobile device. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Two-Tone Uncensored and like it on Facebook.